Welcome back to Spanning the State on WTMJ. I am Kristen Bry, along here with Steve Scafidi. And we're in the second week of a brand new show. Yeah. How's it going? It's going great. Good. We're going, it's going just swimmingly. And one of the segments I'm excited to bring to the show, one of the more fun segments, is Wisconsin in the Wild, where we talk about when Wisconsin makes national headlines or the amazing race. We're going to have Wisconsin contestants. Uh, Farmer finds a wife. There's Wisconsin contestants. You know, whenever Wisconsin makes it into wider national headlines. Uh, but this story is not quite <laughs> no. what no. I had in mind as far as fitting into that segment. But earlier this month, Wisconsin did make the New York Times with Mario Coran's investigation of the dire situation of the 10-year-plus staffing shortage in Wisconsin's prison, prisons, and Mario's here. Thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. First, congratulations on the piece. It was, uh, br- it was brutal, which is hard to, it's hard to read, but it's so important, and it was, I thought, moving as far as laying out the timeline of how we got here. So before we get to that, can you paint the picture for what the situation looks like right now? Yeah, so I think um, the simplest way to say it is the there's there's simply not enough uh, correctional officers, not enough guards to uh, safeguard the people that we have in state prisons in Wisconsin, um, and so this problem became pretty acute around the start of COVID, uh, but it has since accelerated um, and really just kind of jumped to the point and jumped to what's happening today is the approach that the state has taken to to deal with the staffing shortages to simply lock down a number of prisons, um, keeping, these are men's prisons, keeping men in their cell, um, you know, for, for most of the day, around the clock. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the rights and the privileges that they've had until, until now, um, including timely access to medical care, um, outdoor time, family visits have been sort of suspended. And so the quality, uh, sort of the conditions that um, men are, 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 are forced to endure day after day have been going on for uh, a year now. Some of these conditions actually mimic solitary confinement. They, they can't get out. There's, there's you know, situations with rodents and hygiene. I get the shorting, shortage part of this, the staffing issues, but whenever you talk about prisons, there's the, the public sentiment that they're prisoners. Why do we care about that? And how do, how do they wrangle that public perception issue? Um, well, you know, there, I think that, that, that there, there certainly is that public perception and that comes in, you know, I hear that every day and a lot of the feedback that I'm getting. Um, you know, I, I don't know if they have to, to go too far into it to, to be able to show what the outcome has been. I mean, there hasn't been – these conditions have been continually, gradually getting worse in recent years. There's been, I think, until recently, very little press scrutiny. Um, they haven't really uh, – I'm talking about government officials, prison officials haven't really had to account for that publicly until this past year. So they haven't had – they haven't done a lot of work to really square that, I guess is what I'm saying. And so beyond – there's conditions of the actual having to be confined into their cells. There's the actual facilities themselves. Like we said, there's a rodent problem. What are we talking about as far as what the ratios are? We said in the headline of the piece is 10 to 900, 10 guards to 900 guards. But Steve, you said you ha- you know someone who is a social worker because it's not just the guards, right? It's also staffing for medical staff, social workers. I talked to one in Waupun. I was up there last summer doing a kind of a city tour and I was I met the mayor and then I met a social worker who worked at one of the prisons there and she said 
each social worker had like a hundred clients, prisoners. There's no way they can handle that workload, which means essentially the work's not getting done. And for someone who actually sort of understands the prison system and the and the the, the pitfalls of doing things like we're not doing here, there's a, there's ramifications for this. They're not getting help. They're not getting educated. They're not getting their minds. That's why I mentioned the solitary confinement piece. Their minds are not being sharpened so they can actually succeed once they get out of prison, which, surprise, surprise, most of these people do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I want to come back to that because that is something that uh, national experts have told me from, from the ACLU that, you know, for all, for all intents and purposes, these conditions do really mimic solitary confinement when you're talking about not being able to see your family for months on end. Uh, for for no opportunity to just get out of the cell and and have enrichment of uh, opportunities, so so that that correlation certainly is there. Uh, when we're talking about the the ratios, you know, we have on paper what the staffing ratio should look like, and um, you know, those I guess are helpful for understanding which prisons are are most understaffed. But they don't give us a great idea for showing what it looks like on a day-to-day basis, how many people are actually there for a shift and how many people aren't, how many people they have to actually operate a a prison. I mean, we have uh, testimony from correctional officers as they were pleading with lawmakers for more more funding back in 2021, saying, hey, look, there's nights at Waupon where we have 10, a staff of 10 people responsible for overseeing more than 900 inmates. And... You know, there there is just uh, the opportunities are rife for emergencies that that nobody can respond to dangerous situations. So how did we get here? You in the piece, you you lay out the timeline. This is over 10 years in the making. So kind of what were the main plot points as far as where we are today? Yeah, um, to to to. I guess try to put it at a to, to try to summarize it. Really, we see um, the very early stages of this. As you said, it's a decades-long problem, but we see the very early stages of this uh, around 2011 when we see Act 10 get put into place. And you know, for those who don't know, I'm pretty sure most in Wisconsin do. But for those who don't know, this was really um, a landmark law that um, really gutted most uh, uh, most benefits. The really Public down, unions. Public yeah, public unions. unions. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Um, and so we start to see guys, uh, men and women, leaving the leaving the force, leaving the Department of Corrections pretty quickly then. Um, and that is the very beginning of sort of a snowball that happens over the next decade, which is really the more that people leave, the harder the work gets for those who remain. And for those who remain, the conditions just get worse. We're talking about um, you know, multiple days a week where we're working 16, where they're working 16 hour shifts, which is just not sustainable. Um, we have signs, um, you know, 2015, we have the uh, former Department of Corrections Secretary Ed Wall preparing a, an internal document warning of the dangers to come if this isn't addressed. Uh, a couple of years after that, we have an escape from Columbia Prison, a maximum security prison, um, which staff tied to the chronic staffing shortage. Do you think the legislature, state of Wisconsin, either side, because often the, the party in power, they can move these issues, get things done. Either side paying attention to this issue, do you think? I, you know, the degree to which they were paying attention, I can't, I can't necessarily speak to. But what we can say at the end of the day is these were issues that were taken up. They were issues that were they were aware of. And we have, um, you know, the, the end result, which is no substantive action taken by either party um, until we get to the 
the point that we're at now. we got to take a quick break, but if you would like to read this story, if you've not seen this, text PRISON to the WTMJ Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620, and we will send you the link to the story. Our guest is New York Times reporter Mario Coran. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Spanning the State. Welcome back. I am Kristen Bride, Steve Scafidi. This is Spanning the State, and we're talking to New York Times local investiga- investigation fellow Mario Coran about the extreme shortage of guards at Wisconsin's prisons. And we only have a couple more minutes with you. So since this article published earlier this month, has there have you noticed any more urgency between Governor Evers or the legislature to start addressing the shortage? Uh, yeah. So, you know, w- w- let's back up to August. So in August, we first published the story, New York Times first published the story that these lockdowns were being used as sort of a man- management tool uh, for not, you know, for not having enough staff. Um, the The response was was more than I expected. There was okay. a lot of, of press coverage around that. And there has been since. Um, and, you know, local outlets across the state have kind of put this to Governor Evers and corrections officials. All of that said, um, the bottom line is that the men in Waupon and, to a lesser extent, Green Bay are still living under the same conditions that they were when we first reported the story. So, you know, while there have been certain statements uh, from the governor in terms of, look, we're hiring more people, we have a large recruitment class, things are going to get better. On the ground, the reports that I have uh, – are saying it's more of the same. And just in fact, over the weekend, excuse me, on Thursday, there was a fourth inmate who, who died um, since these lockdowns were put into place. So, you know, the bottom line is men are still dying. I talked to Mayor Ron Bishop about this. I talked to Mayor Ron Bishop about this not too long ago. And, and basically he made this point, which I didn't even think about. The fact that you're understaffed, those people, those individuals who work at the prison, that's part of your local economy. So the fact that they're significantly down in their workforce has a local economic impact. So regardless of what you think about prisons, this is an important factor in the the thriving of a community that really, let's be honest, they have five prisons in Wuhan. It's a big part of their economy. Oh, sure. That matters too. Yeah, absolutely. And so what drives recruitment as far as, I know we had someone text in about vaccine requirements, but also pay. I know that, that last with the budget that got passed last summer, there is an increase in pay, but what are the steps that need to be taken to actually get back to filling some of these vacancies? So pay is a big part of it, right? That's the, you know, the dollar signs attached to this job opportunity that would make people consider it. It's not the only thing. Um, in fact, one important factor in this, in this sort of recruitment is also retention. And that historically, the Department of Corrections has lost a- about half of all the people that it brings in the door. The reason that it loses it is, as I've been told, uh, it loses so many people is because once they get in, they see the work conditions, they see that they're obligated to overtime. And there's only a certain amount of pay that will force you to stay at a job like that, right? Um, so, so it's kind of chicken or the egg. Absolutely. It's that right now the conditions working there are so rough because there's not enough people. So they're having a hard time even retaining the people who are working there. Absolutely. And then you have stories coming out like this. It doesn't necessarily paint a positive picture for a potential job recruit. Other right? than salary increases for corrections workers, what else is potentially on the timeline that could make this problem kind of go away. Yeah. So importantly, I want, I want to say that nobody that I talked to for the story from either side has proposed pay raises as being a one-time sort of one-and-done solution. Um, even if it was pay raises that, that was going to help as a solution, it's something that is going to be have to brought 
back to the table uh, a number of times as salaries increase across the economy, right? This is not a one-time thing. The other side that hasn't been fully really explored or even articulated by the governor is that when the governor uh, was coming into office, he made a pledge to explore ways to bring down the prison population by half. There really hasn't been a lot of uh, steps taken uh, to reduce the prison population. Um, there really hasn't been uh, a lot of exploration, at least publicly, for, for that side of it. So um, those, these are both two levers that, that could be explored potentially as a solution. Is that same traits happening in other states? Are they th- having declining prison populations, or what are you seeing? So the a lot of states, the prison populations went down before COVID and, and sort of ticking back up. Wisconsin, as, as, as a state, has done less than other states mm. in terms of considering uh, comprehensive um, criminal justice reform and, and, and reducing the prison population. Does that come back to, this is a, an opinion question, so feel free to not, <laughs> since you are a reporter, feel free not to answer it. But as far as the idea of being soft on crime and the political stances on that, do you think that plays into the urgency, the a- action or inaction around this story? Well, I, I, I did pose this question to a number of lawmakers, um, and Darren Madison, uh, from, represented from here in Milwaukee, uh, certainly feels that it does. Um, well, as we see the uh, the elections in 2020, we saw really a, a rebirth of the sort of tough-on-crime rhetoric that had led to some of these more draconian policies back in the 90s. And it became, I guess, once uh, once again politically popular to take this tough-on-crime approach. And so in Darren Madison's view, and I think he has a lot of reasons to, to make this stance, it, it is kind of a return to that um, and, and it is almost a political liability or may have been seen as a political liability here, at least here in Wisconsin, to take more uh, drastic steps to really grapple with these issues. Because it was it was this. There was also recently an article of there's a bill on banning shackling pregnant women when they're giving birth. There is we still can give the death penalty to minors. Which I didn't even know 10. that was a thing. I didn't I didn't realize that pregnant women could be shackled. Yes. And, and so there feels like there is a lot surfacing right now and i know that you're continuing to follow this story and this beat so we'd love to have you on as there's more stories about it and i would love to actually talk to you again and have you back on how you got into journalism and following this story but we have to let you go mario coran is a new york times local investigation fellow if you would like to read his story text prison to the wtmj talk and text line 855-616-1620